0: This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one- to two-week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer.
1: Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. Uh Uh I want to get into it, man, you know. Uh Like, you know I'm the man, don't you? Uh Can I count it off? Uh One, two, three, four... Listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview, transcend partisanship, and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square.
0: This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, brought to you by the Ann Campaign. Justin, it's always good to be with you and glad to be with you this week. How how are you?
1: Always a pleasure, brother. I couldn't think of anybody I would rather, uh, talk politics with, man. So I'm glad to be here as, as usual. Uh, it's been a, a long morning already, though. Um, as I'm sure people will heard by the time this comes out, there's a lot going on, uh, in Chicago, just, just a clash and a, you know, downtown really taking a beating. I don't have a lot of the, um, The details. So I'm not going to get into details and say what happened or what didn't happen, but I will send prayers to the leadership and the people, uh, in Chicago. Uh, there is a lot going on. I hope, um, that they get to the bottom of it and, and, and find a way to just serve the people, but it's tough down there. And I would ask that everybody kind of extend prayers, uh, for that area and what's going on and, you know, in Portland and other places. And that's not to compare the two, but just to say that, uh, you know, we, you know, we need, we need a better way forward. And so, Uh, Just staying prayerful, brother.
0: Yeah, and, you know, well, Anne Campaign has so many uh, uh, pastors, and uh, we have our chapter in Chicago, and so, you know, thinking especially of of, uh, our close friend, Chris Butler, but also Pastor Dates, uh, Daniel Hill, Brian Dye, just just folks that, um, uh, you know, are, are often called on in moments like this, and so praying for... Their le- leadership and stewardship of, of their congregations and people. But, but yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll stay tuned on this. And, uh, and if it's appropriate to talk about next week, we'll, we'll do that. But, uh, J- Justin, we do have uh, quite a bit to talk about already this week. Let's, let's start with the first topic. And I'll, I'll be honest, uh, I think. We could spend multiple episodes just on this because it's there's so many different threads, so many different uh, sort of angles to discuss. It, here are the basics. We know that Congress has been heading towards a fourth coronavirus relief package. Senator McConnell said it months ago. Democrats have uh, wanted a fourth package. Uh, negotiations appear to be stalling out last week. Uh Republicans were advancing a one trillion dollar bill. Democrats advancing a three trillion dollar bill. That's that's a pretty big, uh, pretty big gap. Late last week, President Trump stepped into this gap with four uh, executive orders, and I'm uh, just quickly here's what they address, and 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 then uh, uh, you know there are comments to be made on each of these, but let me I'll just lay out the the issues he addresses, and then I'll turn it over to you and, you know, we could have a discussion, but, uh, the executive orders address unemployment aid and Trump's executive action, uh, calls for a $400 per week, uh, in unemployment aid, uh, that, that is a drop from the, the $600 that was approved by Congress in the last bill. Um, so, so it addresses that, uh, it addresses, uh, assistance to renters and homeowners by uh, encouraging uh, federal efforts to help renters and homeowners avoid eviction or foreclosure for failing to make their monthly payments. Uh, The order directs his administration to identify uh, funds to provide temporary financial assistance uh, to renters and homeowners. It addresses a payroll tax holiday. This has been a controversial uh, position that the the Trump campaign is kind of selling it as a as a ta- tax break Democrats are saying uh, that it, it'll pop right back that, that it it's a tax delay but uh, folks are as of now still going to owe these all these taxes so uh, they're saying the executive action here doesn't hold up and, and then it addresses uh, student loan relief through uh, extending the interest rate and suspending federal student loan payments. Uh, just I have so, so many different <laughs> sort of things to say, but, but that sort of as you, as you look at the actions Trump uh, took, obviously there's been a conversation about whether uh, they accomplish what he says they will accomplish, whether they're legal at all. Although it was interesting. Chuck Schumer had the had the opportunity on the Sunday morning shows yesterday to say they were illegal. And he 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 and Speaker Pelosi haven't sort of made that accusation. Um, and so. So, yeah. What do you think about Congress's inability to act or unwillingness to act? And President Trump sort of stepping into the void here with these executive actions.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we always have to frame this conversation. And the, the way I want to frame it is, is by saying this, and this is why it's so important. Uh, 5.4 million unemployed Americans won't be able to cover their living expenses without an extension of unemployment benefits. So I think that's a, a good way to start the conversation because it frames it and it puts, uh, skin on whatever policy or, or, or bill that, that you get through. And that's what I think. Yeah. I hope the Senate and uh and the House keep in mind. I mean, that's 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 a big deal. Now, as you mentioned, there's a, a two billion dollar gap between bu- what both sides want to do. One of the other interesting things about this is some Republicans in the Senate have already said, I'm just not voting for another relief bill, which means that right. it gives the Democrats a little bit of leverage, but apparently not as much leverage as Republicans uh as not as much Republicans don't think it gives them as much leverage as the Democrats would like to think because they're, they're still very much playing hardball, even though they're going to need uh, those Democratic votes to get, you know, get, to get something uh, significant through uh, the Senate. So that's kind of the background of what's going on, Michael. I think you covered the $400 a week versus uh, the $600 a week uh, very well. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about executive orders, because so much of this, you know, kind yes. of surrounds. Please do. What's going Please on with do. Executive order. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> executive orders, just so you know, and, and you guys know that the ANN campaign is about raising civic literacy. So we're not just here to give you commentary. We want to we make sure you understand what's going on. Executive orders are basically directives from the president to administrative agencies or, you know, usually uh, government officials. Um The source, now anything that the president does, right? So it's, this is a directive, and we understand that anything he does has to have authority, right? He has to have the constitutional authority to do something like that. And the source of the authority for executive orders is Article 2, Section 1 of the United States Constitution, which references executive orders, giving the president the power to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. To take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Now, as an attorney, that gives, a a lot of room for uh, interpretation. (laughs) But I think uh, this is about making sure that the laws are faithfully executed, not to make not to make what would amount to a new law. Okay, and that's really where the dispute about executive orders uh, lies. Executive orders are not meant to be an alternative to legislation. Congress has the authority to make legislation. The, The president does not have the authority to create or pass legislation. Right. And so an executive order is not meant to usurp Congress's power, the, the legislative branch's power, meaning that a president should not resort to should not be able to resort to an executive order because he can't get Congress to move uh, legislation. This is the problem that a lot of conservatives and some constitutional scholars had with Obama's uh, DACA executive order. Um, right. They yeah. they'd say that it, it went too far and was the equivalent of legislating from the executive branch, because since, you know, we couldn't get comprehensive immigration reform done, Obama went to the docket, the DACA executive order. And I think anyone, you know, it, it, and whether you agreed with it or not, uh, we've talked about DACA. We think DACA as uh, um, as something that helped immigrants was a good thing you still have to admit that there's an argument that it was an overreach. Now, whether you think yes. that overreach was necessary or not, you got to admit that there's an argument there. Uh, I don't think it's something that you should just dismiss. Now, Congress yeah. and the courts do have the ability to overturn uh, an executive order if it's outside the, co- uh, the scope of the president's power. And we've seen that uh, done before. I think it um, happened to a couple different presidents. Um and uh, uh, President Truman, that's who it is I was looking for. I think President Truman tried to use the steel industry and, and kind of make it part right, of right, right. Um, of uh, the, the, the federal government kind of took control of it and the courts pushed back on that. OK, so that does happen. Uh, and so if you just just to take a historical look at what's going on, no president used more executive orders than Franklin D. Roosevelt, who we know was serving during the Great Depression. Roosevelt issued over 3000 executive orders in comparison, just some some more recent folks. George W. Bush issued 291 executive orders. Obama issued uh, 276. And Trump at this point has issued under 200 uh, in his first term. Uh, We've heard, you know, there's some executive orders that we're all, I would hope, familiar with. We know the Emancipation Proclamation from uh, President Lincoln that freed three million uh, enslaved African-Americans was a uh, an executive order. Uh, FDR, again, uh, used an executive order to create the Works Progress Administration, which was uh, meant to create jobs for the American people, again, during the Depression. But he also used it uh, to place Japanese-Americans uh, in concentration camps during World War II, Right. So mm-hmm. uh, they've been used in good ways and bad ways. There's some disagreement on it. Generally, it's one of those things that uh, people complain about when uh, the other party does it, <laughs> uh, but don't condone and defend or defend when uh, their party does it. Thankfully, Ben Sass, Senator Ben Sass, who's been very quiet lately, it, it's been kind of weird, but he did speak out against Trump's executive order. He basically said, look, it was wrong with when Obama did it and it's wrong now and that Republicans would be wrong to stand by it when it you know, when it's something that shouldn't have been done. To your point, though, <laughs> it's interesting that uh, that uh, Schumer and uh, and Pelosi have not said that it's illegal. Right. Uh, and right. maybe it's the president that was set by Obama or maybe it's that they figure if if, if Democrats win the White House, they may be using uh, quite a few uh, executive huh? orders themselves. But I think one of the things that I'm trying to get through to people is it's nothing to play with. I mean, you should be wary, whether it's your party or another party, of how the president uses executive orders, because, yes, we vote in the president, but we also vote in the, uh, the Congress. And they have a job to do, even though they don't always do it. And He you know, you don't want you don't want to put it in a position where the executive is taking powers that the executive does not have. So something to keep an eye on and something, again, that may play a role in the next administration. But even for this administration, it's become a pretty big issue.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just want to pick up on that a a bit. You're exactly right. There are a number of reasons to be wary of executive orders and, and actions like this. Uh, One of which, which you alluded to, is that uh, it it lets Congress off the hook. You know, one of the reasons, you know, Congress didn't act on comprehensive immigration reform, one of the reasons why Congress doesn't act on a whole lot is because they... They now feel like they can get away with not having to make tough decisions and that if something really needs to get done, the executive branch will just take care of it because the buck stops at at the Oval. And so that that's a that's a situation you don't want. The the second thing I'd raise with executive uh, uh, actions and especially executive orders is that they um, uh, they uh, it's hard to hold a president accountable for them. And it's hard to say when the american people vote for a president uh that they are considering in their vote these sort of these sort of actions um and so in my view it kind of it 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 weakens uh, democratic accountability it weakens trust in the civic process i I mean i think just the average uh, person with any level of uh, understanding of civics uh Has a baseline assumption that, you know, that that it's the house that controls the purse, that it's Congress that approves funds. But then they read in the newspaper that Trump is uh, unilaterally extending benefits and unilaterally sort of changing the benefits that Congress voted on and approved. And I think reasonable people are, are saying, well, what's the, What's the point of Congress passing legislation? What's the point of voting for members if they're gonna sit on the sidelines well uh well, presidents again of both parties and this is really important uh, uh, it, Justin's absolutely right this is a that this is a problem with the way our government is functioning in the modern era, which is congressional impotence and a strengthened executive. Uh, so, 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 yeah, I, I think those pieces are important. I, uh, we probably don't have time today to, to walk through some of the various pieces I've said previously on the show. The the unemployment benefit piece that, after reflection, uh, and frankly after working through some uh, reflex uh, reactions to unemployment benefit debate, you know, I I, 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 I do think there's a debate to be had about whether uh, $600 of unemployment benefits per week, uh, is too much. Not because, um, not because, uh, I think folks who aren't working are, are, are uh, don't want to work or are lazy, but because I think folks who are collecting six hundred dollars a week for not work when their jobs are paying them less are just not dumb. They're, they're not going to go back, give up the, those benefits to go back to work. Now, one way of addressing that is making sure people are getting paid more for their jobs. But I did just want to revisit that that issue uh, that that. I think Republicans have a point that Democrats haven't answered in good faith here that we've seen restaurant owners and small business owners raise. Uh, Was there anything else in the executive order package that uh, or the package of executive orders that 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 stuck out to you, whether it was student loans or or um, I know we're going to be talking about. Uh, rent and, and and evictions later on. But anything else from the executive orders that you wanted to pull out?
1: I'm glad you hit on what you did. I think we can very we can too easily see the tweet that, you know, Republicans want 400 and Democrats want 600. And if you're Democrat, you, you say, wow, aren't those Republicans just really mean if you're or if you're a Republican, you say, man, those Democrats are, you know, too, too lax on that. They're not paying attention. Uh, and so I'm glad you brought that up to say, no, it is a conversation we need to have. Right. It's not necessarily just something that people said, I don't want you to have money. I want you to starve. We realize that it creates certain incentives and it yeah. is smart of a person. Right. If you're getting if you're already in a position where you're struggling, you're going to go to the place where you get the most money. Right. You're yeah. I mean, that's not that's just a logical decision. So. Uh, I don't think you know. No way is being condemned for that, but it's something as when you're making policy, it's something that you have to consider. I think a lot of people will be in, are interested in what's going on with the with with the student loans, whether it's deferments or whatever. That's yeah. very important at a time when people are just struggling to get through, and people are really questioning the way that you know our student. Uh, finance system is set up. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, those are things to keep their eye on. I just wanted people to really understand the process and why there's this big, uh, this big back and forth. Hopefully Congress gets it together and gets something done ASAP. I, I would, uh, even like to see a moratorium on all this commentary. I, I think our, our folks <laughs> in com- Congress are, are great commentators on Twitter and everywhere else, but that's not why we put you in office. We have people that commentate. We want you to do, do your job. So, Let's put a moratorium on that until you guys get something done.
0: That's good. Yeah. So uh, both uh, McConnell, the administration and Democrats have expressed uh, that they're not foreclosing uh, uh, negotiating a deal that would override these executive orders. So we'll we'll keep our eye out for that. Uh, It may work out that these executive orders, just because of the uncertainty they promote, and that would be my other criticism of, of executive action, because the 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 constitutionality or the legality of them is so often up for question uh, when you're dealing with something like an unemployment benefits or 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 what tax cuts people will have and what they have to pay back. You want certainty, not not the not the the threat or, or the the sort of uh, the, the shadow that uh, these things might not hold up. That was the same problem with DACA. You you know, it was a very sensitive issue. And yet you had, you know, uh Thousands and thousands of, of people who, you know, because of the executive order had their had protection. But that executive order was fragile, as we saw um, uh, it, it get challenged in the Supreme Court. Um, and so, so really enjoyed that conversation, Justin. We're going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to talk about an article that was published yesterday. Uh, On the cover of The Times that got a lot of uh, attention from Elizabeth Diaz, the, the title of that article was Christians Will Have Power, Christianity Will Have Power. We'll talk about that after the break. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Elizabeth Diaz, who's a religion reporter for the New York Times, been working on a story for months where she uh, sort of went back and revisited what she views uh, as a pivotal speech from Donald Trump. And I, I happen to believe this speech was a, a really critical one, too. In January of 2016, uh, Donald Trump went to Sue Center Iowa and spoke at Dort College and just uh, just I, I have a bit of con- context here I, I spoke at Dort maybe a, a year a year ago it's a re- heavily reformed community um, so uh, a lot of re- various de- denominations of reformed christians in Iowa uh, heavily white I think 97% uh, uh white uh and Donald Trump went to Dort at a time when his campaign was still, you know, f- fragile in the Republican primary, and sort of made uh, up to that point one of his most direct appeals to Christian voters, Diaz uh, d- profiles some of these Trump supporters, uh, sees whether they're going to support him in 2020, um, and uh, it- it's. Yeah, I think for folks who read this stuff, often much of the story will, will ring sort of familiar in sort of media commentary, journalism about evangelicals. Um, there were some interesting pieces. I'll just pick out, I was happy that Diaz included Pastor Alvarado, um, who uh, uh, was a Hispanic pastor in this area. He reflects on, what it's been like for him to be Hispanic evangelical le- leading, uh, leading a church that uh, actually shared some of the concerns of white evangelicals in, in town about uh, sort of government encroachment on religion and, and secularization and those kinds of things. Uh, Pastor Alvarado also said, "You know, I also think there's a biblical call to welcoming uh, the foreigner." And so uh, he doesn't say exactly who he's going to vote for in 2020, but uh, the, the implication was that he was he had some had some problems with 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 Trump uh, that uh, his his uh, white colleagues and, and brothers and sisters, uh, many of them, did not have. I was glad that was included. I will say Justin as I'm reading commentary on this story and this was this story was trending on Twitter a lot of people were talking about it a lot of people have picked out the story as an example of look at this pastor who can't get fellow you know white white pastors to care about these things and I think that's absolutely true I I I I think and we talk quite often about uh uh, sort of, uh, of the, the narrow approach to politics that is able to avoid and ignore the concerns and interests and, and uh, injustice facing so many. But I will say the flip side of this is I didn't see a whole lot of people acknowledging Pastor Alvarado actually saying that, uh, Folks had a point to be concerned about the way that Democrats were <laughs> approaching religion. I didn't see a whole lot of people, but like in this ironic kind of way, people were ignoring the very voice in the story that they said was most important. Uh, and that's what happens in our politics right now, too. Which is, where is where is Pastor Alvarado's voice? Uh, not just in the Republican Party, but in the Democratic Party. Uh, just I'm so interested. I mean, this, this article. Was fascinating again. Some some of it was felt familiar, but because it was so, um, it covered so much territory. It was such a local story, so I appreciated getting to uh, feel like you you were getting to know a a certain slice of America and a and a certain city here. Um, What 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 did you think of this uh, this article?
1: I thought it was good. I you know you you bring up a, a good point. When when we read articles like this and you're 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 seeing real people get interviewed and give their real perspectives. How do we read that article? Do we read that article trying to learn and trying to understand? Or to your point, do we read the article really just trying to find things that confirm our narrative? Right. Mm-hmm. Or boost up our narrative. And I think depending on how you read this, you know, it's going to have a big deal. You know, it's going to going to play a big part in how and what you get from it. And so I I was trying to learn from it and see, really understand the perspective of the people uh, that were in it. And one of the again, one of the main parts of this is about power and Christians. You know, Christians have to be very thoughtful about power because power isn't necessarily a bad thing. Right. The Bible talks about power positively in many instances. Uh, We also see power uh, talked about when we're talking about abuses of power. Or sinful ways of attaining power. And so I think when we read something like this or we just think about the politics and how power plays of politics and how power plays a part in that, Christians have to ask a couple questions. Power at what cost? And power to do what? Power to what end? Because we know that power can be used to protect us. And, and that's one of the, the points that the article hit on. That's not necessarily right. the right kind of thing. But should it be used by Christians mainly to protect us? Is that why? Is Mm -hmm. that the main reason we we should be seeking power? And what can't we compromise even to receive this real or perceived power and protection? Right. What cannot be compromised? And I think. You don't see Christians always asking those questions or answering those questions properly, and that's part of the problem that I think is being addressed in. Uh, in, in this article, mm-hmm. I think we should be suspicious of leaders who stoke, who are stoking fear, and are using that to uh to their advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's saying, "I'm yes. going to be your protector. All you need is me." And one quote, uh, Trump says, "You know, we, I guess, meaning Christians, he's including himself in that, we don't exert the power that we have, right?" And he mm-hmm. basically says that if he was elected, he promised that that would change. And here's the quote: he says. Christianity will have power. Like you said, if I'm there, you're going to have plenty of power. You don't need anybody else. You're going to have yeah. somebody representing you very, very well. <laughs> Remember that. Uh, And it was very effective. I mean, it, it was yeah. from from one standpoint, kind of a, a brilliant way to address a group who is feeling embattled. Right. Yeah. And we see that, you know, it worked. Eighty one percent of white evangelicals voted for him. Right. And the question that we would ask, if we go back to those questions that I asked, power at what cost? What did they give up? Because a lot of people would say, yes, why evangelicals gained a protector? They gained power. But they lost credibility. Right. And they lost that 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 core of a faithful public witness. Right. And so power can't be judged by itself. It has to be judged within the context of what's being given, what's been taken and how you're left afterwards and what you're trying to achieve. Um, a, a good quote that you see in, in the article says, uh, from the start, it appeared, it, it appeared that this was the relationship between, uh, Trump and evangelicals was an impossible contradiction, right? Evangelicals for years have defined themselves as the values voters, people who right. prize the Bible yeah. and sexual morality and loving your neighbor as yourself. Above all, mm-hmm. Trump was the opposite of this, and and I think it hits it on the head. That's the question that a lot of people are asking. Mm-hmm. In turn for protecting yourselves and giving you power, what did you give away? And think and, and I think what you give away is that values voters uh, brand, if if that was ever there. Yes, and what yes, you say is. you pull from the Bible, and how much yes. you say you love your neighbor when you allow yeah. someone to speak in these w- these ways to other people, and don't. Correct it. Right. Right. And so in so many ways, you know, the article just shows that Trump has turned American politics into one big contradiction and not just on one side, on the other on both sides. I mean, you yeah. almost forget that Trump is not Southern, nor is he a conservative. Right. You'd think he was, by the way, that kind of coastal progressives talk about him. But the truth is that he's. A progressive, you know, that the truth is that progressives basically hate one of their own, right? He came from this Northeastern liberal progressive culture. He funded their campaigns. He attended their weddings. And on the other side, the contradiction that I think the, the article gets right is, is conservatives now support and defend someone from a culture they claim to dislike and claim to be de- very different from the kind of fast talking elite Northeasterner with really no blue-collar bona fides, you know, and no real moral compass. So you have to ask, how did we get into this situation? And I think, as as this mentioned, it, it was a matter of power, not, not principles. And for those of you who have been following the AND campaign for a long time, again, we're not going to do anything trying to lose. We strategize, we work hard to get wins for our goals, which is promoting, you know, human flourishing and defending human dignity. However, Christians have to be willing to lose if it means maintaining the witness that we should have. And so it's always the witness over the win. We've said that over and over again. But one of the things that I think you point out, and I I think was good, Michael, was that we also know that white evangelicals are an easy target. Right. If you want to max if you want to maximize approval or likes on social media, lampooning or criticizing white evangelicals is a surefire way to go about it. We also know about the illiberalism that's going on in the Democratic Party that's going on in academia and elsewhere. So I think when people say, why in the world do you feel under attack? I think that's a little much. Now, can it be yeah, exaggerated? Right. Can that attack be exaggerated? Sure. Uh Is, is this right. a bloody persecution? No. But I think <laughs> there's an argument to say it's a polite persecution. And then the other thing yeah. I would say uh to progressives before we, you know, before Folks get too self-righteous is that this happens on the left, too. I think we need to ask ourselves, why did Vice President Biden, why did Tim Kaine and many, many others change their position on abortion? Right. Was this a a power transaction? I would say that I think it probably was. Why won't any other nationally known Democrats speak and raise questions? When it comes to abortion, when it comes to gender identity and those things, is it because they're they're uniformly in agreement with all those things just magically over a few years? Or is it a play for power? Is it saying that I will surrender these values so that I can obtain this power that I want, this position that I want? And so it happens all the time. And this isn't to excuse white evangelicals or anything else, but I think. Folks on the progressive side have to ask themselves, do you have the guardrails to not go along with a progressive version of Trump, which would be very different and the issues would be different and the conversation would be different. But would you push back on that? And and I thought this article brought up some of those issues very well and, and just gave the perspective. But I think when you trade in power for your values and for the for integrity, It's just not a transaction that Christians should be making, but it's not one that's only made on one side either.
0: That's good. That's good. Uh, We're going to take our our last break. When we get back, we're going to talk about what many are saying is the looming and in some ways already here uh, eviction crisis that could affect millions of our brothers and sisters. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, Justin, you sent me, uh, uh, this, this article and there was a bit of conversation over the weekend. Um, uh, the U.S. Census, uh, conducted a massive survey, uh, just over, uh, over the last, uh, three months or so and found that an estimated 27% of adults in the U.S. missed their rent or mortgage payment for July, and over a third said during uh, as July was coming to a close that they had. Uh, listen to this, uh, over one third, thirty four percent said that they had little to no confidence that they could make their August rent payment. This is the, uh, this is most profound across the South. Uh, in Texas, uh, this Bloomberg City Lab uh, article with the headline, one-third of American renters expected to miss their August payment by Kristen Kapps, uh points out that in Texas, 39% of uh, renters said they weren't certain they'd be able to pay their rent in August. In Oklahoma, that doubt is at 43%. We are looking at a pro- potentially profound Crisis, uh, and as uh, Benjamin Applebaum, uh, Benjamin Applebaum at the New York Times pointed out, it is a bit of a revisitation of 2007, 2008. And Applebaum makes a passionate case uh, that he believes it was a major mistake back then for there to be bailouts for corporations and banks. Uh, but not for homeowners, and we saw so many lose their homes and and, and face all kinds of struggles during that crisis. Uh, and he basically says, "Let's not make the same, uh, let's not make the same mistake uh, twice." One interesting thing he pulled out is uh, uh, finding the argument from Princeton sociologist Matthew Desmond, who has argued that eviction is not just a result of poverty but a cause of poverty, and that when people lose their homes, it actually uh, continues, exacerbates, drives a cycle of poverty that affects not just them, but obviously their kids and even the broader uh, community. He points out that studies show they move to less expensive neighborhoods, their children end up in lower quality schools, eviction strains their ability to keep a job, Uh, uh, if they are married, they're they're more likely to get divorced. And so this is a a family cohesion issue. They're obviously more likely to end up homeless. This feels to me like, A, an issue where the the church is going to be required to step up uh, in terms of caring for folks in a very direct way. And charities are going to have to step up. It also seems to me that it is potentially such a sweeping crisis, such a threat to the nation, uh, that I, I agree with Applebaum that direct policy action uh, is is necessary and not just sort of bandage, but but something that's going to offer real relief to people. What do you think about the fact that he, you know, this tidal wave? seems to be coming for so many individual people and families, one, and then the country at large? And and how do we process this as Christians?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, I want to be clear about one thing about this conversation about the the housing crisis. And it's that we had a housing crisis before COVID hit, before the crisis. And so you better believe that this is going to be a very serious and worse crisis now that uh, COVID has hit. And now that so many people are are unemployed, uh, we needed a paradigm shift when it came to how we think about housing in America. And now it's even more important that we focus in on this and put the partisanship aside and say housing is a necessity. How do we make sure that we do better? Um, Because even again, before the crisis, especially in your big urban areas, right, especially in your big progressive cities, there was a complete failure on housing when it came to low income people, just a complete failure, um, though. That's where most of the resources are in your urban centers. That's where most people want to be, because that's where the jobs are and so on. And a complete failure. I mean, you go to the San Francisco's, you go to the Seattle's, you, you go to these major cities. And again, I've said this before, poor people can't even live in a lot of these places unless they're on the street. That's the way the market, the housing market has been set up in those places. And too many people who care to who who say they care about the poor did nothing to prevent it, nothing to stop it. Uh, And so now is a time to really take have that conversation. As you know, Michael, in Atlanta, uh, me and some of the folks uh, here uh, created a uh, city roots, ATL, where we are trying to address that exact problem. And so. This is, again, we bring in the conversation about the relief package. The relief package is going to be a part of it. But on a national, but really a state and local level, we're going to have to be very deliberate about how we handle this problem and making sure that we don't destabilize, destabilize Americans in a number of other areas because they don't have housing. If you don't have housing, yeah. you can have other things, but everything that happens to you is going to be destabilized. You, you come to neighborhoods like mine and you talk to teachers. The amount of kids that are in and out of the school don't even finish the school year, go to two or three schools a year because they don't have housing. Right. right. So it affects That's education, right. it affects everything else. It affects what jobs that you can get. And if if we're not paying attention to that, we're going to be in a very bad place. So we have to make sure that we come up with new, innovative ideas and that we make this a priority when it comes to American policy. We can't just sit around and hope that people figure out where they're going to live and what they're going to do, because it throws off so many other things. And so I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this in Atlanta. We're trying to bring the church to say this is something we care about. It doesn't matter what. Uh, Party you're in, we're going to deal with this crisis and we're going to find ways to be on the uh, on the front lines in this conversation. You're talking about one third of Americans are not three. Thirty four percent are not going to be able to pay uh their their rent in August. That should break our hearts. I don't, You yeah. know, I don't know how many people listening to us have had unstable living conditions or not know not knowing where you're going to live from month to month. That is so yeah. stressful. And it impacts everything yeah. else that you think about and that you do. If you don't know where you're going to be and where you're going to live, now the Bible speaks yeah. directly to, to 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 helping people in those situations. And so Christians need to take it very seriously because again, this housing crisis that was here before the crisis, the uh, COVID crisis hit, is only going to get worse after it hits us. And I'm not going to say exactly what policy you need to push forward uh, right. today. But you need to be yeah, very yeah. thoughtful. About how we take care of people uh, and how we we treat folks who are on the verge of being homeless. Yeah, well, just I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, I, I
0: mean, it, it, just as you talk and just as I think about this episode, um, I just feel like there's a lot to pray about, <laughs> and uh, and so what would urge people? Uh, I, I think sometimes we talk about. Uh, there, there are discussions about politics, and uh, we can go running everywhere else. And it's so important to hold lawmakers accountable and think about how we could be helpful in our advocacy. But, um, uh, whether it's struggling with COVID, whether it's worry about your neighbors being evicted, uh, whether it's concern about how uh, the economy is going to affect your small business that you're trying to keep afloat, um, <laughs> Uh, these are things that we could take to the Lord uh, and not just sort of pray and then move on uh, as we would otherwise, but actually uh, invite invite the Lord into our, our thinking about how to how to move forward, about what our perspective should be, about what our priorities should be. Um, that's that's something that we we, we try to uh, do imperfectly here on the podcast. Uh, it's something we invite you to do as as listeners Uh, We know that these are uh, uh, tumultuous times and especially uh, we're still trying to figure out what's happening in Chicago. But there's just something something happening uh, every day, every week, it seems. Um, Justin, I think we're we're nearing the end of this episode. We've covered quite a bit. Uh, You you taught. uh, constitutional law class. Uh, as we talked about executive <laughs> orders, we we did our best to cover. Uh, we did our best to uh, cover uh, uh, how how Congress is tacking, tackling uh, COVID relief and, and that New York Times article. Uh, uh, why why don't you close us out?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I, I just want to just reiterate to people, man, how important it is for us to try to be faithful in this moment. The world has plenty of partisans. They have plenty of people that can only think about, uh, social justice or only think about moral order, but it has too few people that can put those together. And that's really what the AND campaign is asking people to do seek to be faithful, uh, and, and, and have the faith to know that it works out from there. We're not just about power, but when we have power, we want to use it not just for ourselves, but for others. And so I'll just hit y'all with the, with the outro. Listen, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, I'll let you have a blessed week. Thanks, y'all.